This message is brought to you by Heartland Family Fellowship. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your speaker today. We thank you for listening in on our podcast and hope that the Lord does bless you as you listen today. We have been doing a series on the art of brokenness. Today's title is called Holding Up Your Leader. And I first want to welcome our online listeners. We have uh, 14 new listeners from India. And we welcome you this morning. Holding up your leader. Our theme statement today is people with pride have the tendency to criticize those God has placed in positions of authority. And they are quick to talk to others about their faults. So someone explain to me, please, why it is that people tend to do that. Why they find it very easy to talk about leaders, whether it's their pastor, it could be their husband, could be their father, could be the mayor, could be whoever. Why is it so easy for us to talk about these leaders and their faults? Well, here's what humble people do. People of humility and brokenness support, protect, encourage those who hold positions of authority and they talk to God in intercession rather than gossiping about their leaders. So when you find yourself bothered about someone and you go to God and you work it out with God, most Christians understand what God is going to say in return. Most Christians understand what God is going to say, I want you to support, I want you to protect, and I want you to encourage those who have positions of authority over you. Most Christians, most people in general, whether they are Christians or whether they're non-Christians, they really don't want to spend their time having to do things that are very, very difficult to do, like protecting someone who you believe actually is either not a good leader or you actually believe that they are wrong. So this becomes a major, major issue when it comes to the whole topic of being humble and being broken before the Lord. So the reason why that proud people do not support, encourage, and even submit to leaders is because they have determined, they made a decision that they are actually better and could do a better job than their leader is doing. That's what's happening. Proud people think they're higher, they're above people. Humble people, servant leaders, believe they are lower, at least a little lower, than most people, if not all people. So Jesus, as a servant leader, thought he was and actually wasn't. He was actually God who humbled himself and became like man. In fact, he became a little less than most men. He became our perfect example of humility. Hebrews 13:17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. 
I'm telling you today, after being in ministry for 30 plus years, I'm telling you that this passage, this one verse, is no longer the norm for the church today. The norm for the church today is, is if you do not like your leaders, or you have found flaws in your leaders, or you are not really sure about that leader, don't submit to them. And I don't want them to watch over me, so therefore I'm going to do what is necessary to keep them from watching over me. And usually what happens is most people hide from their authority figures. Because they don't want to be watched over by them. Because they don't trust them. We live in a world today is that we submit ourselves to people only those who we have determined are good enough leaders to submit to. So therefore we have an anarchy society in our churches, anarchy society in our country, and probably even in the world. If you don't like your leader, do a hostile takeover, remove them from your country, remove them from your church, uh, oust them out of your community. Why? Because you don't want them watching over you. Not realizing that when we get to heaven, those who do not honor and support this actually have to give an account for not honoring their leader. Does someone want to try to quote the passage 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18? Or someone could look that up. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18. The whole passage is powerful, but I want to make a single connection to our passage for today out of this verse. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18. Okay, let's see. Servants, be submissive to your masters, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are harsh and unreasonable. For this finds favor in the eyes of the Lord when a man or woman subjects himself to unjust leadership. I really don't know a community anymore that functions like that. It used to be if you didn't like your president, you got on your knees and you prayed. And you stayed in intercession before God. And now we gossip, because the reason why we need to gossip is to create a movement to get them out of office. As you know, the gentleman that actually is the co-founder of the ministry that him and I started many years ago, IOM America, he is the president and also co-founder of the presidential prayer team. And we started that ministry when George W. Bush was the president, and it took off like wildfire literally put John before the President of the United States jotting down his personal prayer requests. And we had a crisis on our hands because we knew if he was not going to be the next President and after a second term we realized he was not going to be our President, we had a crisis on our hands. A decision had to be made, was the Presidential Prayer Team Ministry a Republican? a Christian Republican ministry or was it what it was founded to be and that is the presidential prayer team no the ministry has gone on and it continues to thrive under the banner of a present president that does not necessarily support biblical guidelines and truths that's what the, that is rubber hitting the road on this passage you not only submit to the, the, the good guys, 
The guys that you could say, well, you have proven yourself to me that you are a good leader. You're a good teacher. You're someone I can follow. No, you're saying, I am going to follow the office. I've been to the White House. I have seen the chair. I have, I have had to make the statement, I do not necessarily serve the man sitting in the chair. I serve the chair, the position, as an American. You do the same thing as a pastor. You don't necessarily support everything about your pastor. You support the position, the chair, as a congregational member. Husband. The wife is not necessarily supporting this husband because he could be a very bad person. There's a lot of not good husbands out there. And the woman is having to support the chair. She is having to empower the position with her spiritual gifting. These are mature Christians who understand that life and position are more important than people who fill them. Do you understand that? If you don't understand that, you're not going to do this. You will not be able to do 218. That passage goes on to say this in 1 Peter chapter 2. It goes on to say this, For what good is there if you serve or you submit to someone who is good and you're doing good? What, what good is there in that? In other words, it's kind of, isn't that expected? But when you have to submit to unreasonable, harsh, in fact, if you read the passage carefully, and if I remember correctly, all four major translations of the Bible say you will gain God's favor. But if you're an arrogant person, there is no way on God's green earth that you can do that. There's no way. You will join the normal world on ousting out leaders by creating revolutions in your church, in your community, in your country, and even ultimately, as it says in Revelation, is going to happen in the world. Everyone hates leaders who do not support their flesh. Everyone. Everyone hates leaders that do not support their flesh. But a quality, dynamic, spirit-filled Christian can submit to an unreasonable, harsh leader because they understand the power of the chair. Throne means in Hebrew, chair. The reason why you see in kings and queens and in castles these big beautiful chairs and a lot of time they're, they're coated with gold and you know it's got the, the things carved into it about kings from years, centuries gone by because the throne is a chair and that will stand through history for thousands of of years, if not eternity, in my opinion. So you see, I don't need to see God to live this. I don't need to see Him. I don't need to walk into the White House and see our present president in order to serve Him. I know of the chair. I know of the position. 
I know God has a throne. I know He has a chair. That's all I need to know. And the prince that has stepped aside from the right side of his father to come and teach us these powerful principles has become now my husband because I am a born-again Christian. Therefore, I am filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I become what the Bible says, the bride of Christ. Which means I need to submit to my prince, to my savior, to my husband. And because he watches over me, he's already given account. He paid the price. So for us to have other people pay the price because they got faults in their life, I'm not even going to go into what God says about those who do that. It's not, it's not pleasant at all. So the fact is, how do we get that person to lead us and direct us in joy? Well, if you've been a parent, if you've been in a position of authority, what kinds of things, and this is a real question I'm asking you this morning, what kinds of things do, would you like that person to do to make you feel joyful as you are leading? Okay, on your position. And how do you want your children to be in order for you to be joyful? First time obedience. Okay, now here's what an average Christian does. They're listening to the speaker. They leave and they, they have to evaluate. They have to process. They have to research. They have to make a decision whether they're going to honor that leader and what they said. And here's how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to know the Word of God so well in your own life that when a speaker speaks, you know if he's in error or not in error. And if he is in error, you need to go talk to him. There's no going and researching or going to college to figure it out. It is or it isn't truth of what's coming out of this person's mouth. That's how simple it is. But we've complicated it by turning people into researchers and developers and thinkers and think tank and independence all figured out. And then pretty soon the leaders are going, well, what, what am I for? What's the parent for? Well, you're not needed. If other people are raising your children, you're not needed. Do you understand that? You're not needed. But if you are doing your job, no matter if it's parent or president, if you're doing your job, you are needed. But if you're not doing your job, facts are, you aren't needed. Now, speaking to you leaders, moms, dads, not, these are not just men, speaking to you leaders, most people have the fear of being held in account. They don't, they don't like the verse that says, Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of man is recorded in the book of life. That's New Testament, by the way. Not that that makes a difference. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of man is recorded in the book 
of life. There's also another passage that says leaders are going to be judged in the end more in a strict fashion than the followers. Why? Because of the passage you're looking at right now. Parents who didn't do their job are going to have a tough time. Now, if you're a born-again Christian, you won't go to hell for that. But you will have a talking to about it. You will be held into account. But the payment is different. For Christians, Christ paid for it. For the non-Christians, for the turkeys, you will pay for it. That's the facts. But see, we want to go through life going, don't you write anything down about me. So gossip is pointing the finger to get people off of the accounting. Get Stop people from recording or thinking it's going to stop God from recording. And in fact, it does not. It adds to it. But I'll tell you what, for a lot of people, this is a very nasty passage. They can read it and smile. They can put it on a poster and put it on, hang it up in their bedroom. But the fact is, to live this verse out will take the very life of Christ in you to do it. Christ himself had to submit himself to leaders on this earth that were on their way to hell. They were antichrist. And he literally stayed silent before them. When he had the power to blow them off the face of the earth with one spoken word. Meekness is someone who has the power to destroy but refuses to use that power for an act of grace. That is meekness. Christ not only was meek, he wants us to be meek, to be powerful people, but yet not use the power for any other way than extending grace. So in this series... Whenever we use the term pride, we are actually saying this person has lost humility. Someone remind us again what the Hebrew definition and the Greek definition of being humble is. Being a little less than human. Now, so pride or the loss of humility is the root of every form of sin and evil. Now, I thought the love of money was the root of all evil. I could do a history on money for you in which one of the seven churches that they coined the first coin, and it will blow your mind on why God says the love of that coin that came out of that church is the root of all evil because of what that group of people did in that community with a coin by putting someone's face on that coin. And it was not the face of Jesus Christ. It is to lift man up. The love of money is to love the face on the coin. That's where that historically comes from. And when we do our series on the seven churches, and we will sooner or later, there is so much history from the seven churches that are written into the scriptures because those letters are being addressed to, as you know, one or more of the seven churches. Real history, continuous live history that was going on when these letters were written. When Satan fell, he began to look upon himself with self-complacency, 
which is satisfaction. That led him to disobedience and was cast down from the light of heaven into outer darkness or self-reliance. The term outer darkness and self-reliance is in the Hebrew dictionary. Self-reliance is outer darkness. Whenever you rely upon self, you're in outer darkness. Whenever you're relying upon Christ, you're relying upon the light. Because he is the light of the word, he is the word that came to dwell among us so we could behold the light. We could behold his glory. So whenever you are self-reliant in the Hebrew, you are in outer darkness. You're functioning in darkness. For those who are listening through online, this slide is dwells with the humble, is where this statement is found. Okay, let's look at our next statement. Under the title of God Despised Satan. Someone read for us Psalms 51.17. Now this is a very small verse, but it is a very, very powerful verse. So God despised Satan because he refused to have a broken and contrite heart. Instead he tried to break God's heart by resisting his authority and by breathing the poison of his pride into the hearts of our first parents, Adam and Eve. That is how simple this whole pride thing got started. You see, Satan was, as you know, his name was Lucifer, which means a spirit, a leader, an angel of light. Lucifer, light. He was an angel of light. He's even referred to in the New Testament as an angel of light. That has not changed. But he's very deceptive since he's lost his little halo. He's a fallen angel. He's in outer darkness. He's in self-reliance. Self-reliance can't listen to authority, folks. You can't. It's impossible if you're self-reliant to listen to authority. So when the world is filled with self-reliant people, they've been turkeyized. It's turkeys doing turkey universities, turkey schools, Bible college, turkey homes, turkey communities, turkey, everything's turkeyized. We're training people to be self-independent people and it's casting them into outer darkness. This is the most, one of the most profound, theological, sound messages we're going to hear in this entire series of 36 messages. Satan himself decided, I will rise up, lift myself up, now remember he was the, ang the angel that took his pinions. He was the cherub that covered the throne. Can you imagine having that role with God that your pinions are covering? They are the feathers. They are the, 
covering of the living God? Do you know where the word opinion comes from in the Hebrew and the Greek? O dash opinion. What's opinion? They're wings. O dash opinion is revealing pinions. He's revealing the inside of his pinions. That's opinion. That's where we get the word opinion. I have already penciled out my thoughts on the topic. Study to show thyself approved to handle accurately this opinion. You see, Satan goes, no, not going to do it. He resisted. He pulls his, his pinions back. And I don't believe there was 40 hours of therapy, folks. I don't believe God turned him over his knee and gave him a spanking before he parted. That day's coming, though. Parents who spank their children before the process is finished are irresponsible parents. Do you realize that God is literally waiting 7,000 years to spank Satan and everyone who followed him? 7,000 years. No, parents that grab and spank and move quickly are irresponsible because they're not letting the process do most of the work for them. So, no, there wasn't 40 hours of therapy. There was not spankings. There was a removal from light and he was cast into outer darkness. He was put on this planet that was completely dark, that God had already gotten ready for him, and he was left there. It's called earth. Then God decided to birth the bride of his, his son from that darkness, and he came, and this is where we get our creation story, and he spoke and there was light. He spoke and there was water. He spoke and there was trees. He spoke, he spoke, he spoke out of that dark place. That is powerful. Just to say to Satan, I don't need you. In fact, I'm going to use you and your resistance to save the bride for my own son. Simple story, isn't it? We sure do complicate it by adding stuff that doesn't need to be added. For my life and my own personal studies, as uh, some of you know, I'm in the process, I'm about three-fourths of the way done. It's been an unbelievable task, but I'm writing a book on the book of Revelation and actually doing a historical study in all seven churches from present day as far back as I can find them. And this chapter has become the absolute most valuable chapter in my study. James chapter 4, the entire chapter. The whole book is unbelievable, but this chapter deals with the whole issue of how not to submit to Satan. Our opening passage was about obey your leaders, submit to them. And then this passage says, do not submit to the devil. The devil's not your leader. I don't care who he possesses. He's not your leader. Now, God wants us to 
First of all, pride is the fuel that draws a man away from God into self-exaltation, which is the gate and the birthing passage of many, quote-unquote, hellish things. Things that are really from the enemy. So when he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you draw near to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. But if you go to a church and they teach you to resist the devil, and they give you books and tapes and techniques to resist the devil, I can promise you today, you're inviting him into your life. With those Christian techniques. There's only one way the Bible, from Hebrew all the way through the Greek, that says you have the power to resist the devil, and that is by having a dynamic relationship with God. If you don't have that living, breathing, dynamic relationship with God, you can't resist the devil, and he won't flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. But see, if you don't know the Bible, you're not going to know this stuff. So when people come along and say, well, you know, I kind of do my own thing with church, and I don't really need leaders telling me, and guiding me, and directing me, whatever. I've never known anyone, including myself, that can direct yourself. I've just never seen it done effectively. So independent people become self-reliant people. Self-reliant people become people of outer darkness. Nothing can be our redemption from pride but restoration of the lost humility. Whatever it is that God allowed into our lives that stole our humility this is how it works. The original and only true relation of the child to its father, that is the only thing that will restore humility, is to say, I am the child, you are the father. Yes, sir. Then we're not just submitting to the things that we want to submit to as a child. Well, that's too hard. That one I'll submit to. That's not too bad. Well, that one's embarrassing. Oh, well, that one is kind of dumb. Oh, that one's Old Testament. That one. And we become this college professor, so to speak, that is always and constantly making the decision whether God's right or wrong. The truth being said, we are drifting. We're allowing the enemy to steal our humility because we're thinking we are a little more than human. You see, the reason why the tree of knowledge is called the tree of knowledge is because the tree of knowledge means I'm a little bit higher than you. I have something to offer you, Eve. The tree of knowledge. I have stuff for you to figure out, Eve. You don't need to live in a naive fashion the way that this God the Father stuff has been thrown at you. You need to figure this out, Eve. You need to think this through, Eve. You need to decide if you want to submit to that thing over there. That's what he did. The knowledge, the tree of knowledge means, translate it yourself. If you have one of your 
Hebrew study Bibles, look up the number. It is. Tree of knowledge is. Ask the question. It is questioning God. Question what God said to you. Question what Adam said to you. Question it. Question authority. Once you do that, it's over. Go get the bumper sticker. It's done. Because you're deciding through the fact of now that you've lost your humility, whether God's right or not. Forget about your husband, your boss, your president. Forget about them. Satan knows she's going to question the father as a child. That's all he wants. He didn't care about Adam. Adam's a nobody to him. He wanted Eve to question her daddy. That's it. Question your daddy and you're lost and you'll go run to anyone who will lead you. Happens to girls all the time. And they get in relationships they regret. This is why Jesus came to bring humility back to the earth. To make us one with humility and through it actually get saved. I mean, we actually get saved because we view Jesus as humble. I mean, think about that. We are drawn to him because he's so humble. So to be humble is inviting others to Christ. Without that, I'm not sure where we're drawing them. The salvation Jesus imparts is nothing less or nothing else than a gift of his own life and death. His own disposition, his own humility, and as his proof that we can only obtain it through the redemptive work of his own suffering. Jesus, someone finished the verse, learned to be obedient through the things that he suffered. The number one things that humans avoid doing is suffering. We take pills. We listen to relaxation tapes. We take walks. We exercise. We order things in the mail. We'll do anything we can to avoid suffering. If you are that kind of Christian, I don't care if you're in India. I don't care if you're in Pakistan. I don't care if you're in America. If you are the type of Christian that avoids suffering, you are not obedient. The proof of obedience is a submission to suffering. Ask Job. Ask Paul. Ask Peter. Ask Jesus Christ. Obedience is learned and embraced through suffering. It happens to be the number one thing our enemy has said, avoid. Absolutely avoid. So if a leader causes us to suffer, we're going to avoid them. Our husband Jesus Christ took the place and fulfilled the, de the destiny of man as a son by his life of perfect humility. His humility grants us a pathway to salvation. In fact, his salvation is our humility. Suffering. His suffering is our suffering. You will suffer as I have suffered. That's a quote-unquote. You will suffer 
as I have suffered. To be worthy of Jesus, you must be like him, as him. He's very serious about this humility thing and suffering. Without humility and brokenness, there can be no true abiding in God's presence or experience of his favor and certainly no power of co-crucifixion. Without this, no abiding faith. Abiding, you'll have faith. All Christians do, even the rebels. No abiding faith or love, or joy, or strength, can man behold. Back to an earlier slide about joy, keeping your leader joyful. The joy of the Lord is our strength. I want to keep Jesus joyful. You know what I'm talking about? Not that I can, but... I want to keep him joyful if I could, because the joy of the Lord, if I share in his joy, I'm going to be strong enough to preach, strong enough to teach, strong enough to walk every day. The joy of the Lord is our strength. This is absolutely critical to experience. Those of you who are a part of the Exchange Life teachings, co-crucifixion. The power of co-crucifixion is in the power and co-sufferings of Jesus Christ. Here's what humility is not. We're almost done. Humility and brokenness is not thinking you have to always be sad and gloomy. You ever been around a fake, humble person? Of course you have. I mean, they're nauseating. You want to say to them, like, get real. You know, because they even talk a little bit different, you know. They sound so plastic, you know. Well, be real. Cry, laugh, hurt. Weep with those who weep. You don't always have to be sad and gloomy, but I'll tell you what, you have a special connection to those who believe they are sad and gloomy. Number two, developing a bad habit of introspection. You see, a true indwelt Christian who is humble, when they receive a thank you, they go, well, you're welcome. You see, they're confident in what God gave them to give to you, what they do with it in their prayer life is between them and God. And yes, they should say, you know, Lord, that was really you that should receive the thanksgiving of what they saw coming through me. And then he receives the thanksgiving with a whole heart. Three, using your emotions to convince God that you're serious. I mean, it's like in your prayer life, you're just like, oh, cry before the Lord I'm so sorry and, and you're repenting and, and there's no change that kind of sorrow produces more ungodliness but true sorrow of repentance produces further godliness and that doesn't mean you have to cry about it it just means that you really know what your sin has done Sometimes it will make you cry and weep before God. And other times it's just, I was wrong. But the sincerity of acknowledgement is what changes the heart. 
Number four, waiting for a tragedy in order to be broken. That is so common, it is ridiculous how common that is. Turning away credit and thanksgiving, I just talked about that. Putting others before yourself. You say, I thought that's a biblical guideline. It is, unless you're the one doing it. But see, if Christ is saying to me, put them before you right now, then that is out of obedience. And I will start suffering, actually, because I'm losing out of the deal. Whether it is grabbing that last piece of chicken, or whether it is serving a person, and by not saying anything, the rest of your life. I'm the one suffering, so they won't suffer. That's a whole different deal. So daily reading your Bible. I know that that is said to be the norm. There's been a movement for now two generations of thinking by reading your Bible you experience transformation. And there is not any transformation in reading the Bible. There's only transformation in being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There are unbelievers that study the Word of God and literally do translations and they are as dead as that doorknob back there. They're going to hell even though they're doing translations for the Bible. Because they have no life of Christ in them. It's the Word in you that brings transformation. Therefore, when you read it, it bears witness with the truth that sets you free. That's why unbelievers who read the Word don't change. You see how it works? But people use it like it's some kind of religious thing they have to do to actually change. Withholding pain in order to save pain, number nine. Avoid being a burden to others, number ten. Being rough on yourself before others even have the opportunity to be rough on you. In other words, you spank yourself so they won't slap you. It's a technique as old as Satan. And God doesn't give much value to it. You'll still be spanked. Colossians 3.25 says, He who does wrong will receive the consequences of that which he does and that without partiality. That is Colossians, New Testament. 325. You see, it's not punishment like we are told about going to hell. This is discipline to change the person and direct them in a different pathway. We do it with our children. We are children of God. He does it with us. It is suffering. It does hurt. It does change us. We learn obedience through the things that we suffer. Last slide. True brokenness and humility realizes that the most noble thing he can do is yield his mind, will, and emotions to a living God that will continue to multiply his gift of brokenness and humility. This way he will continuously acknowledge the truth of his position, the chair, as a dependent and yield to God his place in setting in the chair, the throne. That if we can process this in our mind, will, and emotions, we'll have daily abundant life. 24 hours a day. 
That's what brokenness is. If you didn't get the stuff on all these slides, remember to go to our website. And you can literally click on the student teacher version of the download and receive these slides and the audio built within those slides every single week. Okay, we've been doing this true-false test, if you remember. This is number, it's actually number three. It is normal for Christians to sin every day. True or false? Answer is false. It's turkey talk. Now I want to show you something. Our whole series is really to move you from turkey thinking to eagle thinking. So we're going to detail this out a little bit. The reason why it's false is you act on what you believe. If you believe it is normal to sin every day, you will. This is not uh, supported in scripture. The fact that the turkeys are telling the eaglets how to act, what to say, what to eat, does not mean that's the truth, even though it will become the eagle's norm. True statement. It is normal for Christians to choose to sin on occasion. Yes, you can actually go through a complete day without choosing to sin. Yes, that is possible. Can someone do it 24 hours a day for the next 35 years? I say no. Because I understand the power of the flesh. Even though it's broken in our lives, I understand what it can do to us. So that's why we use occasion. Satan wants you to think, no, you're a sinner and you're still a sinner. You might have been saved by grace, but you don't even know what that means, so don't, don't think about that. Being a sinner saved by grace means you go from being a sinner to a saint. The seven churches, that was the primary message given to them, is you are saints. You don't need to be made a saint by a particular church. You're no longer a turkey. You've been converted, transformed into the new life of an eagle. So a Christian can live without sin as long as he or she chooses not to sin. Committing a sin requires a willful choice to do so. Sin never happens accidentally or without consent. That'll never work on Judgment Day. Why would God hold anyone in account for something was accidental? That is an irresponsible father. It is willful, chosen sin, is what it is. Plus, if you don't believe this, and you do believe that the Holy Spirit lives inside your mortal body, you are actually insulting the Holy Spirit, because the number one job of the Holy Spirit is twofold. One, to reveal your chosen sin. Two, to free you from doing it again. That's the two folds of the role of the Holy Spirit. And you're saying, the Holy Spirit's not doing its job then. So remember, again, that pride is ugly.
Thank you for joining us today. Heartland Family Fellowship is a local church plant here in Sterling, Kansas. Our fellowship includes the family and all levels of worship. Our mission is to bring families back together spiritually, relationally, and physically. Many people ask us, what does that really mean, or how does it benefit them? Well, it means that you can bring your entire family to any of Heartland's events, and we will work to keep the focus on God, Jesus Christ, and the body of Christ without dividing up the family at the front door. If you're interested in learning more about our fellowship or other family-integrated fellowships, please log on to our website. That is www.heartlandfellowships.org. We thank you for joining us. Get yourself in a bind, lose a shirt off your back. Need a floor, need a couch, need a bus fare.